God, thank you for your text. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word. It's great, Lord, to see some new faces here and that they can join us on our journey. And Lord, I just pray that tonight we'd be challenged and encouraged and that this would be a great opportunity, Lord, for us to get to know you better. Not just know your word better, God, but actually get to know you better. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One last check of the waiting room here. We want to make sure no one's waiting and trying to get in. I'm going to mute everybody one more time just to for the sake of background noise. It's nothing personal. It's just the world of Zoom right now. Okay. All right, so we are in the book of Nahum, and tonight's called The Avenging Refuge, and that doesn't make any sense at all. We, you, 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 you don't really go for vengeance, or that, but yeah, that's just the way it is. We're going to see how, um, yeah, Mick texted in, according to MacArthur, it is not quoted. Okay, well, you know, MacArthur's a smart guy. So uh, by way of introduction here, let me, get, let me get my text open here so I had it, because if I didn't, that'd be really bad. Okay. Verse 1, a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. Now, what's going on in history here? So I put, I put some dates here on the top of this page. You can see the page here. Uh, it, for those of you that got the email today, um, I emailed a copy of this. When I put this in Microsoft Word format, it takes the graphic at the top and shunts it to the left or something. And then when I open it up to edit it, it opens it up in the Apple word processing program. So I never can change it. I'm not, not good enough to change that. So if you're looking at my screen, you go, mine looks different. It probably does. But uh, 786 to 746 BC, there's a 40 year period of there. All we know about Jonah is he served during the, the reign of Jeroboam II, who was a 40, he, he served for 40 years. We don't know exactly when Jonah was. And for somebody to say, oh, I know the exact date of Jonah, that, that's not right. There's nobody knows it. And so we just know where about it was. And so sometime in there is when the, book, the events of the book of Jonah took place. We do know when uh, Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. So they were threatening to do so, and they do. And they, the northern 10 tribes, you've got the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. You've got the upper 10 tribes referred to as Israel, and the lower one tribe, Judah. And the, the 12th tribe is Levi, and they don't have land. They have cities, and they're like pockmarked throughout the whole, whole place. So in 722 BC, so that's 700 plus years before Jesus, Assyria comes through and wipes out the northern kingdom. And just remember, the Assyrians... Sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Wow, I said Assyrians, and my Siri perked on. How about that? Boy, I gotta get you turned off here. Okay, thank you. The Assyrians... <laughs> they came through and they were real jerks. They were torturous people and nobody wanted to deal with them. That's why Jonah didn't want to go. When God said go, Jonah said no. And so the Assyrians came through, they conquered the Northern kingdom, just wiped them out. And they did worse than that. They enslaved everybody and they took the people and they just took them away. They took them to the slave markets and um, yeah, these upper 10 tribes. And this would later lead to, um, what Samaritans would one day become, these interbreeders with, uh, the, from the north that would interbreed once again with some of these, um, these Gentiles. And so that's why Samaritans aren't looked at fondly in the New Testament. The Gospels, the Samaritans are like, ugh. The, the Jews don't want to deal with the Samaritans because they kind of come from this, this time period of forced interbreeding with the Gentiles. It's not all because of that. But this is where it kind of gets started. And so the Assyrians come through, wipe out the upper ten tribes. And so... 
Then the book of, of Nahum comes. So by the time of, of, of Jonah, Israel is still intact to a degree. Okay, no one's wiped out. But now the Assyrians come in. And so evidently they had, you know, some time of they repented in Jonah's day. And that was a generation that I guess made it. And then all of a sudden they didn't. And so they, they conquered the northern kingdom. And then we have the, 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 the events of the book of Nahum. So our text today. Soon after the book of Nahum, Assyria is going to be dead. So in the book of Nahum, we would expect God to be like Babe Ruth at the polo grounds, holding up his bat and calling the next pitch as a home run. We expect God, historically speaking, to say, Nahum, or to say Assyria, you're crispy critters. You're going to die soon. Your time is over. We're going to expect that. Because right after the events of Nahum, they get that. The Babylonians come through in 626 and, bleh, and take out the Assyrians. Okay? In 586 BC, of all these dates, only know the last one there. In 586 BC, Babylon conquers Judah. And we get the great stories of Daniel. And we get the stories of we get Ezekiel the priest and, and even the, to a later extent Esther. And so that exile time, that's, that's the Babylonian exile, the Nebuchadnezzar, the fiery furnace, all that kind of stuff, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's after 586 BC. So that's where Nahum is. I just want you, kind of want you to know what's going on here. Um, but it's a really, really scary, odd, weird time in Israel. In fact, Israel is no more. The upper 10 tribes are gone. It's just Judah. And so we learn the word Jew comes from the word Judah. In Hebrew, Jew is, is Yehuda, and Jew is Yehudi. It's like a Jew, and this is the, the case from the time of Esther. So anybody who is a Jew in the New Testament, at least linguistically, is going back to Judah, the tribe that survived. The tribe that would produce David, did produce David, the tribe that would produce the Messiah. And so that's where we're at in the introduction here. 150 years later than Jonah. So basically Jonah plus 150. So that very first generation that Jonah was there and they repented and we are going to assume that they're in heaven. We are going to assume that God saved them because Jesus used them. The men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn you, Jesus says to the Pharisees. So we're going to assume that those guys are in heaven. Okay, that whole generation that repented, they're good. That's the only assumption we can make, taking God's word at face value. But by the time it's Nahum's day, they're back up to their ways again. They're back up to doing their terrible things again. They have already conquered Israel by that time. They've already enslaved God's chosen people. So we're going to expect God not to be pleased by this. Not just they were a burr in the sight of Israel. They literally defeated them and enslaved Israel. Wow. That's, uh, and Nineveh, that's Nineveh. That, that is it. Nahum, um, if you want to be kind of more Hebrew accurate, Nahum. Um, I won't say that. I'll just say Nahum. Um, the, in Hebrew, you're, you're always concerned about the consonants, not so much the vowels. N-H-M or Nun Chet Mim. That means comfort. You see this in a proper name for Nehemiah. So the N-H-M there, Nehemiah, adding the Yah at the end, which is like short for Yahweh. So that's Yahweh is my comfort. So Nahum means comfort. And so we're going to see this interesting side of God where is God, Israel, or Judah's comfort? What would being a comfort look like? Honestly, 
if, if, if I was besieged, if I was threatened, uh, and you can look in the, the books of Kings and Chronicles and check out the stories of King Hezekiah and King Josiah. They dealt with these guys, and they, they dealt with being threatened by them. And it's in the book of Isaiah as well. Um, you'll see a Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. What's he going to do? And yeah, it's a great, great study to read about what the Assyrians did. You had two major powers at the time, and, and, and God's, God's people, Israel, Judah, is right in the middle. You had up here in the northeast, you've got uh, Assyria, and Babylon's kind of right here, but they're coming. Assyria, and down here, you've got Egypt. And right here is Israel. Okay, so you got these two powers right here. There's like a little road going right down through there, and that road was everything. And that's the big trade road. Go up to the, the Tigris and Euphrates, the Mesopotamia here. So Israel sandwiched between the right two and King Josiah, great king, a great godly king. He made one mistake. So check this out in, in Second Chronicles. He decided he was going to go, and, and the king of Egypt was right here, and he was going to march up to go after the king of Assyria. And Josiah says, I'm going to go after Egypt. And God speaks to the king of Egypt and says, what are you doing? You don't want to do this. And Josiah soldiers forth and he dies. It was just one of those things. They were sandwiched between these two powers. It'd be kind of like in World War II being Switzerland. And you're like right in the middle of France and Germany. So which one am I going to side with? What am I going to do? Do I find my hope in either of these two world powers or do I just sit it out? What do I do? And so Israel here, or in Judah's case, Judah, and they're here right in the middle of geopolitical warfare and the threats and the violence and the trade things and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is a crazy time in history, and especially in Israel's history. This is a messed up time where there don't seem to be a lot of right answers, where it's very tempting to trust everybody but God. It's like, this guy has a bunch of chariots. I want to trust the guy with chariots. This guy has a bunch of money. I think I want to trust the guy with money. This one here is threatening me. This one here is not. So maybe I can go to this guy to help me against this guy. And God becomes a second option or a third option. So is God going to be a comfort? And what would that look like? What would it be look like for the guy named comfort, Nahum comfort, to preach comfort? What would that look like towards Nineveh? Is Nineveh going to get the Jonah sermon, or are they going to get something else? What's going to happen? And so, yeah, this is some cool stuff. Because if you can figure out what to do in a situation like this, the stuff that you go through in your life, you have a handle of what's going on here. You're like, you know, this is what God expected them to do. So what does God expect me to do when I'm in my impossible situations? And I was in a couple, and anyone who's ever had a kid, uh, especially when you're, it's your first child, and I, I remember, oh, I remember you, the kid makes a sound, you don't know what it is, and you've got the pediatrician on a speed dial, and you, you, it's always happening like at two in the morning, and the kid won't stop crying, and like, what's going to happen? You, the temperature won't go down, you're calling the pediatrician, because you want some kind of refuge, you want some kind of answer, something. What do I got to do something? What can I do? And they call them on their answering services. Okay, what temperature is it? What have you given them? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, go to Walgreens and get this or go to there. So I, I've, I've been looking for 24-hour pharmacies, that kind of stuff, to try to figure this out. 
and uh, where science was kind of like my refuge at that point. The doctor was my refuge. He had an answer. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a second kid, and, you know, and some of these things, you face them, and it's like, oh, okay, this happened before. I understand. This is what we did then. But until you know what to do, you just kind of have to run to a refuge. Like, what do you do? I don't have an answer, so i got to find somebody who does have the answer. And God's going to be the refuge here tonight. What's going to happen here? Different side of God, 2 to 3a. The Lord... And this is like a theology lesson right here. This is Nahum chapter one, verse two, and the first part of verse three. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Whoa, jealous? Seriously? The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Whoa. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Then the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. <laughs> that kind of feels like a non sequitur at that point. God is, venge is ve has vengeance and he has wrath and he's going to take it out on his enemies. But he's slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. See, Jonah needed to learn that. That was Jonah's big thing. He's like, I don't want to go. This is the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because of the off chance, God, that you were going to save them that they actually would listen to my turn or burn sermon and then turn, that they would actually turn back to you, God. I didn't want that. I wanted them to die. I wanted them to be judged. I, and and, and I, don't, I hate the fact that, God, that you're slow to anger. I, I want you to be quick to anger. Don't you know what they're doing to us, God? So Jonah ran away. And every single one of us probably would have done the same thing. I'm not going to guess for you, but as much as I see people going back and forth on Facebook over things, I mean, that'd be kind of like on 9-11, right when we were most united as a country and the two towers fell. Imagine God said, I want you to pray right now on your knees for every member of the Taliban or for Al-Qaeda. Pray for those people in Afghanistan who just hurt us or whatever. Pray for those terrorists or pray for those ones who produce these terrorists. It's like, no, 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 they, they are our national enemy right now. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to pray for them. I certainly aren't going to go there and lead them to Christ. Are you kidding me? So we understand what Jonah did because we want God. J Jonah needed Nahum chapter one. That's where Jonah was at. That God, you are avenge. You uh, take vengeance and you have wrath. Yeah. Well, God is a jealous God. We're not surprised. Exodus 34 says this. Uh, it says in verse 14, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous. This is this for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now we're told in the New Testament, jealousy is a sin. So God is either a sinful being or God is not. And if we take the Bible at face value, God is not a sinful being. Because if God's a sinful being, then kicking an Adam and Eve out of the garden makes no sense. He's not holy anymore. He's not separate or set apart. If God is flawless and no, not a sin, then when God exercises jealousy, he doesn't do it like a 13-year-old. He doesn't do it like you or I when we have our jealousy and our envy. God, whose name is Jealous, God is a jealous God. And what did God just done in Exodus? He just delivered his people miraculously from enslavement. And now these people want to go worship something else? God's like, no, heck no. You're my people. You are my possession. I created you, I made you, I rescued you, you're mine. 
You're not going to give your allegiance. You're not going to give your worship, your love to anybody else. Are you kidding me? God is a jealous God. God shows vengeance, but God's not vengeful. Vengefulness is something also not allowed in the Bible. And the scripture here is Hebrews 10. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's not something we lead with in church. We want to lead with, you know, God loves you and that Jesus died on the cross for you. And though you are a sinner, he's a great savior. We don't want to lead with, you know, God has wrath and it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. But that's the very case because that's the very next thing about wrath. I mean, this is something I hope you've thought about. But if you haven't thought about it, think about it now. If someone says to you, what is salvation? Oh, well, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, these are all correct things. But if you're saved, you're saved from something. What is it you're saved from? I'm saved from my sin. Yes, you are. But why? Well, Jesus, yeah, but, but really, what about your sin are you saved from? I'm saved from, I'm not a sinner anymore. <sighs> no, you're safe because God has to respond to your sin. Ask Adam and Eve about that. They got kicked out. What are you saved from? Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So you're, when we're saved, we're saved. What we really are saying there is we are saved from God's wrath, that God has to show my sin. My sin must be paid for. That's why Jesus had to die in my place. I had to have my sin paid for. If my sin is not paid for, it's still on the table. And God's wrath, God's justice must be shown towards that sin for God to be a just God. Yeah. In Eden, God initiated salvation, Mick texted in. Adam and Eve are too busy blaming and making excuses. Exactly. I mean, God spends the rest of the Bible. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. God spends the rest of the Bible doing this, trying to make them back together again. That's why he tells Eve, you know, you're going to have a, you're going to, the seed of, of your, your loins essentially is going to crush the serpent's head. And so, yeah, God needs a good name. And his reputation matters. And so God's very jealous. But not in a sinful way. God shows vengeance, but he's not vengeful. Vengeful is a character thing. We all know someone who's vengeful. Don't get on his bad side. He's going to get you back. Or, boy, you say that thing to her, you're going to get it said worse to you back. That's a vengeful person. That is a sinful, selfish person. God is not sinful or selfish. God's wrath will be shown. The slowness of God, God is slow to anger. Literally in Hebrew is... So there used to be a joke with, uh, with my Jewish friends about they have long noses. And the joke is, we do have long noses because our God has long noses. And so slow to anger literally in Hebrew is long of nose. And I want you to think about, um, oh, I don't know, Rocky and Bullwinkle or uh, the, the, the evil guys in there, they have a bomb and the bomb has like a really long fuse. It takes like the whole episode for that fuse to finally reach the bomb and pfft, Okay, or, you know, Wiley Coyote with his Acme, you know, bomb kit or something. And what it means is God's fuse is long. 
God's anger, he's got this really long fuse. And it takes a lot for God to finally show that wrath, his anger. And so God is saying, I'm slow to anger. My fuse is very long. See, Nahum is setting this all up right here. This is who God is. He's jealous and avenging. So you hear that, God? We're being destroyed, God. Assyria is still alive, God. We're your people, God. Do you, 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 do you hear their cries? Do you hear their cries, Lord, on the slave blocks? Do you hear your cries, oh God? That's it. Is, I mean, God, are you going to take your vengeance? Are you actually going to show up? Are you going to leave the guilty unpunished? Are you going to make sure they're guilty and they are punished? So you can already hear Nahum taking it to God in his opening words here. God, we're up against it. We have no other scenario but you. You're it. This is it. So either you're going to show up or you're not going to show up. So God is holy there. He's there for not a cheesy movie villain. It's like, ah, I'm going to show you my vengeance. Here we go. No, 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 no. If God's reacting this way, he's doing it in a holy manner. So it's very comforting to make God in our own image. Like, I'm going to make a God that, look, that look, kind of looks like me and sounds like me and thinks like me. And that's the exactly wrong thing to do. We can't do that. God is not us. We're to be more like God, not make God more like me. And so, well, God, God has all these emotions. And God is just like me thinking with his emotions. Yeah, maybe. But not like you, because you're a sinner because I'm a sinner. I can't make God, oh, he's, 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 I like a God that thinks like I do. No, you don't. You might like that God, but you don't want to worship that God. Understanding the justice of God, yeah. Well, Jonah had to face that. Jonah had to face the justice of God. A just God would have wiped out Nineveh, but he gave him a chance to repent. He led them to repentance, and they did. They seized it, and God didn't destroy them. At least we assume. The text never does say, but Jesus probably would have said something about them if they still got destroyed. His power is great, 3B to 6. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. And Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like the fire. The rocks are shattered before him. So he, he, Nahum uses some, uh, some, some geographical things here. His power is great, of course. Sometimes he seems slow in uh, punishing the guilty, but uh, God's in control. We've got to trust his plan. History does not unfold on our timetable. It unfolds on God's. The clouds. Clouds bring the weather with its agricultural blessing or curse. It, at that time period, your economy was farming economy, and clouds were everything. And I, my goodness, I, I needed to mow the lawn the other day, and the clouds got really dark. I said, well, darn it. It's, I can't mow the lawn now because I'm, I'm going to get going on this thing, and the rain's going to come down, and i got to stop. And this has like weird, this side's cut, and this side's not. And we look at the clouds, we can tell a lot of things. Imagine if that was your entire economic world, if the rain comes down. You're not surprised that they worship Baal in the Old Testament, the lightning god, the god of the clouds. The God who technically sends rain, according to him. You're not surprised when they worship a Baal, because Baal was going to send the rain, then you got to have crops, then you got to eat. So the temptation was always to worship the cloud lightning God, the rain God, because that brought prosperity and fertility. And God's over the clouds. The clouds are the dust of God's feet. The sea was an image of chaos and power. 
God merely rebukes the seed and it becomes dry. The rivers, everyone depended upon the wet season and the dry season, which was what fed the rivers. And God controls them too. Wow. Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon. These were places that were known for agricultural abundance. So we, we live in Chicagoland. So think of like um, the rich places, like Kenilworth, and, you know, New Trier, and like the Gold Coast. And like someone would mention that if you're from Chicago, like, oh yeah, that person's made it. They're in Kenilworth or Wilmette or something. Yeah, that, that's like Kenilworth here. Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon. In God's presence, they wither and fade. The mountains, they quake because God is creator. He caused them to do so. The hills, they melt away or dissolve as the annual rains carry soil away by soil erosion. But God controls that too. Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is famous because that's where Elijah got on the mountaintop. And it was, it was God versus Baal. Who's God? And whoever says that the fire from heaven is going to be God. But Mount Carmel is, is like the great place up north. So for Nahum to mention Mount Carmel, um, that's like a shot at the ten tribes who are no longer there anymore. God, do you remember the north? Remember the tribes? Do you remember them? Remember your people who aren't there anymore, God? Yes, I know. You read some of these, um, these prophets in the Old Testament. They're just going after Israel. They were fat and happy. They didn't care about God anymore. They looked at their pocketbook and said, we're good. And they just started worshiping all these other gods and all these other gods. And God's like, you better turn back because it's going to come. And by Nahum's day, it had come. They were gone. Crispy critters. God used Assyria to flatten their obstinate brothers in the north. Now Assyria has gone too far. Their turn is next. The images from the natural world, God is in complete control. Nobody can stand against our God. Judah needed to hear this regarding evil Assyria. Judah needed to hear this. They needed to hear that God is in control. Think about the worst thing in your life right now. And you know what? COVID-19 has given us all chances to think about this. Many of us for months have been stuck in our homes. A few of us, you know, we're out where we are the essential ones get to go out. Even when we go out and come back, we're worried. And we're, oh, am I going to be positive? I, and so this is like, this whole idea has brought up questions and it's, it's divided us. And we, people are sitting on two different sides. Think about your worst case scenario. Are you trusting in God? Is it causing you to grow closer to God or is it dragging you away? Judah was up against it here. Judah was up against it. And this is a great put up or shut up moment for God. For Judah's sake, at least, for their perspective. Judah needed to hear this regarding evil Assyria. That God was powerful. And that God was willing to take vengeance. Not vengeful, but take vengeance. The stark difference, verse 7 to 10, the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Don't you dare overlook that verse. He's a refuge. He's good. Start there. So many of us, we know God is God. But we say, God, I don't see how good you are because I had to go through this. Or grandma had to go through that. Or we had to endure this season of that. Or we had to go, God, I get it, you're God. You do your thing, you handle your business, but you're not good. Because a good God would do this. It's very tempting for us to grow bitter. But Nahum starts here, God is good. God is God and God is good. We have to acknowledge those things. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. 
I like that verse as a care pastor. And as your care pastor, one of the things I do the most is encourage you to trust in God. God's got this. I just got off the phone with someone today who's, who's, who's kind of freaking out because she's got some problems with her kidneys and she might have kidney stones. And I kept saying over and over and over again, God has got this. And when I pray with people, I say, we're going to leave this in God's hands because we know God's hands are very capable. And God, God can handle his business. So there we go. He's a refuge in times of trouble. You go to a refuge when you're up against it. A refuge is a place for you to hide. It's a place for you to find safety and security. Think about your life right now. What has been your refuge? Maybe you think back to when you were a little child, you would run to mommy's arms or your dad would pick you up. Maybe you had a special place you went to and that was your hiding place. You felt safe there. Think back to the time where you felt safe and secure. What was your refuge? What was a place you could run to when all the world around you just sucked, but you could run there and you can hide there. Maybe that place was inside of you. Maybe it was just a, a, a mental thing. You just you said you were quiet. You just thought about things. And that was your escape. That was your place to go. I don't know. But God is saying here, I am that refuge. You can come to me in times of trouble. I care for you and you can trust in me. A refuge. Refuge and care. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. If you're a Bible memorizer, by the way, memorize Psalm 46. Psalm 46.10 is one of my go-to verses. In fact, with the woman today I was talking to with, with, the, with the kidney stones, I told her, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that he's God. Know that he's God. Know that he's good as well. But yeah, so, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the, and the mountains quake with their surging. God is our refuge. He's the one we can turn to. Like I guess in, in U.S. history, like the Alamo, like a one final like re refuge to go to or something. God is, um, and five metaphors of certain doom he gives here. Yeah, the, the, the Lord's a refuge. He, he cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. My goodness. Five metaphors ascribed into his end. An overwhelming flood, darkness, entangled among thorns, drunk from their wine, consumed like dry stubble. Ouch. So God's using, uh, you know, and some of those, some of those have, have biblical, you know, the flood, darkness. I mean, yeah, there's things, there's things in, in biblical history that, you know, we get um, that, that makes sense there. But yeah, metaphors of certain doom. God's goodness is shown by what he provides for his people. The number one thing God's provided for you, and this is an easy one, salvation. Your sin was not the last chapter of your book. There's one more page at least. And uh, yeah, you've been saved from God's wrath that needed to be shown towards your sin. How are you saved from God's wrath? Jesus on the cross 
bore that wrath for you. He took God's wrath in your place. That's what he did. He, didn't just, he saved me from my sins, but how? He took God's wrath. So much so, he's, he's up there going, why have you forsaken me? Why am I, if I'm getting all this wrath, and why have you forsaken me? He, this wrath meant that he had to be like Adam and Eve and kicked out of the garden because he was separate from God. The one time in his existence where he was separate from the Father as he suffered in my place, in your place. It's like that he, he bore that very wrath. That's how God shows his goodness. By rescuing those who call upon him and saving those and delivering those who call on his name in faith. So if you're ever wondering if, if God is good, think back to the blessings he has provided for you. See God's hand in your life. See what God has done for you. See what, I, what God has done in you. See what God has done through you. I mean, God is a faithful God. He is so faithful. He loves you so much. And that love is shown by how he provides for you. His power is great. There's a stark difference here. Yeah, make Texas in. That's how God can be both merciful and just because of Jesus. That's right. If God was completely just, you would die for your sins. If God was completely merciful, nobody would ever die for their sins because God would just wipe it out. But there's only way, only way God can ever show mercy because sin still has to be paid for. God can show mercy if someone pays that debt. If someone dies in your place, death is still occurring. So like the, the, that great credit card debt. So like someone says, I got your bill. And then they come up to your table at dinner time and they, you know, you're not paying. Back when we used to go to restaurants, I sit at tables. Okay. They come up to you and they, and they, 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 they take your bill. I got this one. And oh, thank you. That's great. They, they don't just walk out of the building at that point. They take that paper and they go to the, the hostess desk where the cashier's at or whatever. And they whip out their credit or whatever. They pay for that bill. That bill still got to be paid. Jesus is, is, is dying in our place, but he's paying a debt that we can't pay. Yeah, Philip texted in, he's our fortress and our buckler. He's my shield against my enemies. Christ took the penalty of my sin and became sin. Yeah. So I could become the righteousness of God. Yeah, he became my sin so I could become his righteousness. Yeah, that's not fair at all, but oh well. That's how God shows his mercy. Amen. Amen. So God's goodness has shown. So heed the word of the Lord. Be close here. I'll make the screen go down just a little bit more. 11 to 15. So he's going to be, God's got some closing words here. He's going to go at Nineveh. He's going to say something to Judah. Nineveh, Judah. There it is. From you, Nineveh, has come forth one who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. Remember how to make God laugh? You come up with a plan. Expect God to rubber stamp that plan. So many times in our prayer time, oh, this is something we Christians do. We come to God and we have all of our prayers written out. And we're like, okay, God, I left you a little line at the bottom. Will you just sign? God, we just kind of quickly validate my parking and it's good to come to God with prayers. We're told in the New Testament to come to God with various petitions and prayers and bring a request to him and care for each other's burdens. All those things are good. But so often we come to God with our things. And we want God to do what we want him to do. We want God just to rubber stamp our life. And we want God to just take us and say, okay, God, I've got this everything planned out. Would you please agree with me? Then we'll be good. And 
That's not the way God works. You might, you might theologically find your prayer life enriched by coming to God, not with a big list, but with a blank page. Hey, God, what do you want me to be, to be concerned about? What about my neighbors needs care? What about my life needs to stop? What about me needs to be more like Jesus and it needs to be less like Joel or less like whoever your name? How can I be more? What do I need to work on, God? And we do this when we have communion at church where we sit there and we hold the elements in our hands and we get introspective. We go, okay, okay, Holy Spirit, right now we pray that, that you come in and show us areas that are weak and that need to be, okay, but that could be a prayer life. The blank page kind of prayer life. You sit there with a pencil in your hand and a Bible open before you. And okay, God, what needs work? What needs to change? What do I need to be more of? Maybe you look at the, the, the fruits of the spirit and the fruits of the flesh from, from Galatians. Okay, am I more of this first list than the second list? What fruit is hanging on the tree of the branches that is my life? And does that make me more like Jesus or not? Like There's all kinds of ways you can look at this thing. But we come to God with plans. And here are Syria's coming in with plans. And... Yeah, and he's got this one who's going to make wicked plans. Yeah, good luck with that, Nineveh. This is what the Lord says, verse 12. Although they have allies that are numerous, they will be destroyed and they will pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Don't skip that over. Judah's up against it. And what did God just say there? How sovereign is God? God just said, and though I have afflicted you, I've brought this. I'm not going to bring it anymore. Wow. Well, my God wouldn't do this, or my God wouldn't do that. I don't care what you say about my God. I don't know what God did do. I will afflict you no more. Wow. That sounds an awful lot like Naomi in the book of Ruth. Look at what God did to me. Look what God... He, seriously. That's like... um. Martha approaching Jesus when her, when her brother is, is, is dead. You could have been here, but you weren't. And now he's in the grave. Now what can be done? You're the healer. You're not the resurrector. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection of the life. Do you believe this? He calls her right on it. Wow. Well, now I will break their yoke, verse 13, from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temples of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Ouch. Dang. So we have words to Nineveh and Judah here. Judah needed comfort. Judah needed to know that God was going to show up. They needed that. Nineveh needed to learn something else too. Nineveh also needed to learn that Judah's God was going to show up. We got a closing victory scene here. And this was made famous in, uh, it was used, I don't think this was quoted in the New Testament, although theoretically, if it, this is like, it was Nahum ever quoted in the New Testament. If, if like there was a gun to my head and say, was it ever, find a place where it was, I would say, yes, it's the armor of God. And the armor of God with like the feet that were like shod with the salvation. Yeah, that was taken from a different part of the Old Testament. But it also sounds like this here. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings gospel or good news, who proclaims peace. 
Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Well, no more will Syria. The Assyrians invade you. Babylon's are coming. But in terms of Nineveh, Nineveh's not going to play with them anymore. A closing victory scene. Let's just close with this. God is firmly in control of history. Especially at our time right now where you've got definite... Um, a lot of people are donkey people, and a lot of people are elephant people. And people look at our situation and go, see, it's that fault, or it's that fault. And you look at your Facebook feed, and it's just, and, and people commenting hither and yon, and people are like, oh, so are you happy? And, and certain lives matter, certain lives don't seem to matter. All these things are all wrapped into the, and we're looking, where is God? Well, God's there. Where was God in Esther? He was there, too. God's firmly in control of history, and it's very tempting right now to look at God and kind of just roll the eyes. Okay, God, we're waiting. You're coming back, Jesus. We know, but, you know, eventually, and we're just kind of hoping you're going to get here. It's really tempting to look at God like he's God in theory. But in the real world where people are hurting, please. Yeah, Psalm 20, text says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's exactly it. And chariots were like the tanks of, of, of that day. They were like the best military possible. God is firmly in control of history. Our response is to wait and to trust. Yeah. Oh, I, I was meaning to say a hymn came to mind. It was a, that hymn, Our God reigns, how lovely are the feet of the... So that, that's coming right from Nahum here. But yeah, um, who brings good news, good news. Yeah, that hymn won't leave my, my mind now. But yeah, um, God is the two great responses, trust and obey, another great hymn. But right now we just wait. All we can do is wait. And as you wait, you're waiting a certain way. Your walk is different. Your attitude is different. Your intellect is different. And your trust is different. W-A-I-T. There's something about you that waits differently because you're a Christian. You wait with expectation. You wait with hope. That kind of waiting has shown up at a Christian funeral. You don't want to say goodbye to that loved one, but you know you're going to see him again. You don't grieve as if you don't have any hope. You grieve with hope. There's something about you that's different, and you wait differently, which is why we use this quarantine time differently. We don't just sit there and go, okay, I can't wait till I get out again. We work on things that need to be worked on. We trust God during this time. We know that God's in control. God firmly in control of history to, to wait and to trust. Philip texts in, he was the propitiation for sin. He freed me from the guilt imposed on me, the law imposed. Justification was, was, was through him. You have, to do, you have to obey God. And the law made aware of my wretchedness and a need for a Savior. That's the thing about the law. The law is great. It's very powerful, but it reminds you that you're a lawbreaker. And when you're a lawbreaker, you've got to have an answer. And the law leads right to the gospel. And if it doesn't, you're missing something. The law reminds you that you need salvation. You need deliverance because you cannot possibly keep the law. I've only stolen something really small. Well, you're now a thief. The rest of your life, you're a thief. Well, I just told one lie. You're a liar. You are a luster. You are whatever. You go down the Ten Commandments. You're an idolatrous. Whatever it is, that's it. It just condemns you. It's all it can do. That's why the gospel is so powerful. Because 
that's not the last part of the story. He who was without sin became sin. A lot to do with, with Nahum chapter one, the avenging refuge. God is both a place we can go to for help, but knowing that he's going to take care of business. And God's business is to comfort me when I'm struggling and to protect me when I need protection as well. And I don't know exactly what Judah's going through here. I'll close with this little story. I had another medical time with my kids. We have, uh, my wife and I, uh, we've had to say goodbye to a couple of our children. They, they just, we never brought them home from the hospital. And one of our babies was, she, she didn't have a very good pregnancy. She, every time we went into the, um, the, the ob gyne she would just show a bunch of lists of things that were wrong. And she just kept saying, I don't have an answer for you. I don't have an answer for you. I'm sorry. And we were just, we're not going to abort. We're not, we're going to keep on, even though we don't know what's going to happen. Like, we're just going to keep, it's like, I don't have an answer for you. I just don't. There was a time when there was no heartbeat. We were freaking out. And I was tossing up every prayer I could on my knees as the, the ob he was like putting a wand all over my wife, trying to find a heartbeat. Nothing. And as the pregnancy went on, that little sweet baby had all these things wrong with her. But the heart would be. As we go into the ROB Gynia, who we, who, we, who we love, by the way, who we know is not a Christian. We, wanted to, we want her to know Christ. We wanted to try to show our faith in the midst of this crisis. And she got to see some of our faith. And she knew we were both pastors. We were a pastor and a chaplain. She knew these things. And so she kept saying, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Bradshaw. But her heartbeat is strong. The rest, I have no answer. Sometimes there is no answer. Sometimes there absolutely is no answer. And no matter, and so for us to just, to like in my opening illustration, I'm calling the pediatrician, I hear, I'm hearing this, what do I do, what do I do? He's like, Mr. Bradshaw, settle down. Just, just go get some Motrin and go, go get some baby Tylenol. Just go, he's leading me through this as I'm sitting there at three in the morning, pulling my hair out, not knowing what to do for my kid that we finally did get to bring home. So I mean, it all the worse. We don't want to lose this kid. We're like, what am I going to do? And, and I, I'm just a rookie. And, and, and so, yeah. Now, science has no answer. There's nothing to do. There's no answer. What do we do when there's no answer? Where do we turn? How do we trust? What's our refuge? Some people are driven to the bottle. Others are to like a bag of chips or something. Others to a drug. Others to a relationship. Others to a sin, an idol, something like that. Where do you turn? Where is your refuge? Judah had one hope, and that hope was that their God was going to show up. And that he could, he could protect them, and that God was going to take care of his business. Like the full court basketball shot, just, just launch it, see if it goes in. That maybe God's going to be both our avenger and a refuge. We've got two more weeks in Nahum. We're going to see how this plans out. And I'm excited about it. Because I want to know how God took care of his business. Because when I know how God did take care of his business, it gives me hope to know how God still takes care of his business. God bless you guys. We'll see you in Nahum 2 next week.